since 1971. As far as I'm concerned, that's the best band that's ever come out of Michigan. Savage Grace, all along the Watchtower. And this is uh, WYF Detroit. Officially, it's about 10 o'clock. The home of rock and roll throughout the 70s and into the 80s. A beautiful 74 rock and roll over degrees in Detroit City. Detroit's only real rock and roll radio station in the decade of the 90s. Well, that's it for me, Arthur P. Thanks for letting me come inside your rock and roll radios. Here's Ann Carly. needs to complain about how I yell at her. You, you were yelling I at me. I was not yelling at you. You were too. I was not! For nearly 50 years, we are, have been, and continue to be 101 WRIF. You have a remarkable mom. WRIF is a remarkable radio station. Baby! Welcome to the podcast, The History of WRIF. Uh, my name is Mike Staff. I had the pleasure of being a DJ on the Riff for 14 years, from 1992 to 2006. And uh, in this podcast, we're going to be talking to the personalities uh, and the influencers that made WRIF what it is. And there certainly is not a bigger personality Anyone who influenced Riff more, whose fingerprints are all over it more than Arthur P. More Arthur. than you know. <laughs> more than I know. Thank you for doing this, Arthur. Lots of DNA over there. <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> In many different locations. You have, uh, you've made such a unique mark, not only on the Riff, not only on Detroit, but on just on rock and roll, on the art, no pun intended, of rock and roll. Uh, when you think about... Oh, well, we did have the Art Fest, so there you go. <laughs> but that was much later after yeah. you got your rhythm and you had your, your, your rhythm on this thing. But Art, I mean, um, <clears throat> when I think about the personality that you brought to Riff and how every subsequent DJ kind of like fed off that type of rock and roll vibe. But then there's Detroit Rock City, and you not only personified Detroit Rock City, but you contributed to the legend of Detroit Rock City because you were complicit in a lot of those stories that made the whole country know how badass Detroit is from a rock and roll uh, standpoint. And then to, to look at it from the standpoint of like so many people that I have talked to, told me the same story about how they would travel down to Florida, for example, and they'd be driving home, and they'd turn on the riff, and they would know their home when they heard your voice. Like, I don't think there's another radio personality anywhere that people would have that kind of... I'm behind the scenes, so I don't know any of that stuff. (laughs) You must have heard that. What's that Roger Daltrey mentioned when he was driving from Canada for a Who concert? He was with his promoter. And, he's, and he said, turn that station on with a guy with a voice, Arthur, whatever his name is. <laughs> he knew. And so he turned it on, and he was all happy. Isn't that awesome? And I never met Roger Daltrey. But, wow, but he knew who you but were. But he knew me. Well, you know what's interesting, and um, I want to hear your stories. I'm going to start with, with a story about you that I was a part of, uh, which kind of uh, it's reflective of, like, you, of how many people knew you around the rock and roll community. Like, the Roger Daltrey thing was a good lead into it. I was backstage at D. I think it was Pine Knob, maybe it was DTE at the time. It's always and, been Pine Knob, period. Yeah, well, Sorry, guys. always will be to me. They're not paying my rent. <laughs> uh, Godsmack was just getting big, and I was backstage with Sully, and you were in the studio, and I was going to inter- interview him, and you and I were talking back and forth off the air, and he could hear the he, he could hear us talking, and uh, he heard me call you Arthur, and he lit up like a firecracker. So was that Arthur P? And I said, yeah, you know him? He goes, no, I don't know him, but i got to talk to him, man. So you guys had like this kind Conversation. We actually met by accident at WRIF. He was walking out of somewhere 
down the hall for morning show or something. Ah. And he come up and he grabbed me. Arthur P., baby! <laughs> that was the first time you met him. Yeah. Yeah, he had told me that he knew about you because everyone in rock and roll told him when he comes to Detroit, he's got to meet up with Arthur P. because you're the badass of rock and roll in Detroit. It was, it was a quick, you know, in and out. I didn't even think about taking him in the studio because I don't think that fast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if they want to come in, they come in. Sure. So I, we have a lot to cover over the years. Let's just start from the beginning. You were, you were born in Honolulu? Born a poor white child. How long did you live in Hawaii? I lived in Hawaii just for a few years. And my father, at the end of the war, my father got a job in San Francisco. He was a colonel in the Army. The oh. war was over. He retired. Got a really nice job in San Francisco. And we lived there in the San Francisco Bay Area from, what, 48 or Anyway, I don't remember because I was that young to remember what days were. And from 48 till I was there until 68. And in the meantime, I was in the service for six years. So, so you graduated high school out of uh, San Francisco? Sort of. Sort of graduated? I went to, I went to four different high schools. Oh, you did? <laughs> time, the credits and you know, parochial credits that weren't public school credits. And public school credits weren't parochial school. And I just made a mess of it. And after four years in four different high schools, I just said, I'm as good as graduated. I know as much as everybody else. I don't need a diploma. <laughs> so you didn't get a diploma? No. Isn't that something? I waited until I was 18. I went to a community college in California. You passed the GED, and I aced the GED, the SATs. Mm. I was right up there over the top and, and went to school for three weeks, but I never went to class. <laughs> and I tried to get to class, and he said, you've been withdrawn. Went and saw the dean. He says, you can come back next semester if you want to, but not this semester. You're done. I said, oh, my God, my father's going to kill me. So I went down to the Air Force Marine recruiters in San Rafael, California, and uh, I said, I got, I got to go, and today's the day. It's not tomorrow. It's not next month. It's now. And, and the Air Force guy said, we can't take you now. Our, our, our quota's full. So the Marine says, we'll take you. So I went across the hall of the Marine Corps, and then the Air Force guys came over and literally had a tug-of-war with me, and the Air Force guys won. So you're in the Air Force for how many years? Four years active duty, two years reserves. Wow. And uh, what years were, was that? 62 to 66 active and 66 to 68 reserves. Wow. So you didn't, Vietnam was just starting in that time. Viet, Vietnam was literally, I kept volunteering for Vietnam because it was a good place to have sex. <laughs> <laughs> and it was cheap. And I went to Japan a couple of times. I, those stories will remain untold. Censored. <laughs> and anyway, uh, they thought I was crazy. And, they said, and when I had six months left to go, they said, Vietnam was really hot. People were dying. And the bodies were coming through the base that I was stationed at. And they, I just said, I, I, I have a first right of refusal. I only have six months left. They said, well, it's only temporary duty. And I said, a friend of mine went there for 45 days. And that was a year and a half ago. And he's not back yet. Right. Not me. So you got and out after I got four. out of the Vietnam thing, which is a blessing in disguise. Yeah. And then what did you do right after that? And I just roamed around Northern California playing in different bands. I played drums and, you know, learned about LSD and marijuana <laughs> and uh, chasing girls and patchouli oil and like hate Ashbury. And, yeah, this is in the thick of it all, right? Oh, yeah, right in the beginning. Seven. Wow. Before the idiots came. Right. And um, so you were in a band that actually went on tour, right? Didn't you go on yeah, tour? Yeah, we had a band called The Vegetables that was popular in California and we uh, did a, a date or two with uh, Mamas and Papas, and then it fell apart. 
and the rest is history. Here I am. <laughs> well, radio was calling my name. Right. So, did you always know you wanted to be in radio? Never, never had one inkling of, of desire to be on the radio. Did you always have a deep voice, like when you were yeah, younger? Yeah, growing I, up? but when I was eleven or twelve, it came on. It was like I'd sit in the back of the class and I wouldn't answer any questions. Like whatever I did, the whole class cracked up. They're all going, "Hi, how you doing?" I'm going, "I'm fine, Arthur." <laughs> and, they even cracked the teachers, I was saying. So people probably told you all the time, though, hey, man, you should be on the radio. My stepmother dropped the seed and the tree grew. She says, she said, you should be an all-night disc jockey on a jazz station. You're perfect. You're smart. You're funny. You know the music. And that's what you should do. And I said, that's not what I want to do. Right. I want to be a rocker. I want to be on a rock station. Right. So you were, you were playing drums. You are partying a lot. You were part of the culture and everything that was going on in the late 60s in oh, yeah. uh, San Francisco. And then how did, you, how did you get into radio? What happened? I heard a commercial on the, on, on the radio while I was driving with my mom in a car in San Francisco for some reason. We didn't get along. I don't know why I was in her car. Anyway, heard the commercial came on. I said, take me over to the NBC building, Mom. When I went over and walked in there, I had the long hair and the beer, and it probably smelled like patchouli oil. And, and I went up to the offices, and they said, well, we're all filled up. You have to come back next year. And I said, now or never, stubborn as I am. And they said, well, take the test. And I did a vocabulary test, spelling test, on-camera test, all that stuff. And, I, and they just said, we're taking you right now. And they aced everything. I, I see a pattern here. No fear. Been, you were kind of impulsive getting into the military, impulsive, like, I'm going to do this now. That's kind of the, the way that you attack life, isn't it? Was, it, was, it was, you know when it's time. Yeah. It's just, sometimes, you know, when I was married four times, it wasn't right. But <laughs> it seemed like a good, good, time seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> so you go, to, you go to broadcasting school. You learn to be a DJ. Yeah, I was a Victorian in the class. Valedictorian. I got a job in Arizona, which was the worst job ever. Quit that after three weeks and went to Washington State near Spokane and worked there for a couple months. And then I had met this girl from Howell when I was going to school in San Francisco. And we were pen pals. And she says, you got to come to Howell, man, and just visit. You know, so I did for Christmas and New Year's. And we hooked up. And we came back and she kept t- t- sending letters saying, you know, the local radio station would really love to have you, WHMI. And I said, okay. So I gave him a tape, and they said, you're, you're good as in. Just be here by February 1st. So I gave my notice in Washington State, drove my car all the way across the country, and uh, the job wasn't available. Oh, no. Some guy had an appendectomy or appendicitis or something, and they had to fill the, the void. So I had to do wow. something. So I worked in a lumber yard hmm. for the first winter I was in Michigan. January and February and March. Then in April, I got offered a job as a test car driver at the GM Proving Grounds. Wow, cool. Which was the most awesome job ever. And eight days into that job, I get a call from WHMI. And they say, we can only pay you 80 bucks a week. And I was making a well over 100 and with benefits with GM. And anyway, plus I married a woman that had four kids. So I had a lot of responsibilities. Yeah. So I took the job on the radio station and said, well, let's just throw the coin up in the air and see where it lands. And then, and that, how long were you at WHMI? Six months. And then Ann Arbor called? Yeah, I got, an, I got a job offer as a news director. I said, sure, I'm, I'm one of those. <laughs> got to wear a suit and tie. I said, no problem. Wow. 
Now, then I wormed my way into being a, the newscaster, and then, and then I wound up being the morning guy, the magic rooster, with the press digitating cock. <laughs> and they got tired of my antics after a few weeks of that, doing that crap, and they moved me on middays from 9 to noon, so I called myself Chicken Little, the sky is falling. <laughs> then I got a call from Dick Kernan, on, on air call, saying, heard you're looking for a job in Detroit. Keep hearing your name. Come, come do an interview. So I showed up. And, and he was at WXYZ. WXYZ FM, still 101.1. Yeah. They hired me on the spot. Coming up. All the stations that came alive all died. Right. Riffs still survived. We're like a cockroach and, and, and Keith Richards. <laughs> the end of the world, we're still going to be around. The history of WRIF. It's quitting time! Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. With Mike Staff and our special guest, Arthur Penhallow. I had read, Art, and I know we've talked about this before. You had another name you went by on the radio. Cicero Grimes. That was Ann Arbor. Oh, that was Ann Arbor? Yeah, that's after, that's when I, went, when I really went rock. Now, when you were on, uh, in Howell, did you use your real name? Yeah. What, what made you not use your real name in Ann Arbor? They wanted me to be uh, a CKLW type, like a Brian Kelly. I see. 2020 News. And, uh, I, and they said, you have to come up with another name. Because, you know, I said, I was watching a movie called Ombre with Richard Boone. And he was, the bad guy was called Cicero Grimes. He was a bad dude with a, with a cool first name, Cicero. So I came in and they, they made jingles for Cicero Grimes. <laughs> That's awesome. And about a month later, I got the job over from Riven or XYZ. Was there any thought of using Cicero Grimes on uh, WXYZ? No, no, you no, want to no, use your real no, name? No, that was buried. Yeah, so Dick Kernan, who has been with Spex Howard for a long time, forever, and now he's the vice president, and uh, and he's you know he's got a great reputation in Detroit and nationally because so many people have kind of leaned in on his mentorship. But at that point, he was in radio for quite some time, and um, and he was the program director of WXYZ. Now, when you took that job, did you know they were getting ready to flip the call letters and, and no, everything? I don't think they knew either. They didn't. Was it the same uh, format? Had one line DJ and that was me. That was you. The rest was all tapes from around the country from other ABC owned and operated stations like in LA, San Francisco, New York, Chicago. Anyway, so I was a live voice from Detroit. The ratings, they they were never in the ratings. As soon as I took the job, the ratings went up. That's interesting. In my day part. So they were they started adding they added Jerry Lubin, which is a good good ad, and then and Hang Malone doing mornings and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And by nineteen seventy one we we were uh, we had a full a full cast of bad boys and girls. And the Literally. format before you flipped to WRF was still a rock kind of a progressive. Oh rock. yeah, it was it was like play what you want, play whatever you want. Yeah, so like, it could be jazz, it could be blues, yeah, it could be I, everything. I played Zubin Mehta, you know, and it was a classical conductor and he had some great music. <laughs> I do yeah. also Sprock Zarathustra at five o'clock for your drive home. Here is twenty minutes of shit you never want to hear again. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. I think we should paint the kind of paint the picture for the listeners. Back then in radio in the late 60s, early 70s, AM was the rage. Oh, yeah. And FM was kind of almost like the bastard stepchild of the AM station. So radio stations that had both frequencies would often just simulcast whatever they had on AM on their FM. So WXYZ, the ABC station, was doing something different. Said, you guys can just go ahead and do whatever you wanted. 
The FM. The FM. The AM guys got paid. <laughs> the FM guys got paid way less. Well, and the facilities were a lot different, too. Talk about the old riff. Uh, well, we were initially studios. in the big building in a little crammed studio for uh, a year, and then they put trailers in the, the west side of the property, and they moved all the office space and everything there. So we became autonomous in the trailers. And we were in the trailers from, what, 72 to 79. They built us a building. Back in the very early days, though, you had some momentum because you're building the air staff on WXYZ, and then it flips over to WRIF, and now you guys are... Everybody like, quit but me. Oh, really? They, they, they didn't want me on the radio anymore because I wasn't part of their, cl- their clan, their clique. Huh. So they all, they all resigned or were fired, every single one of them. Wow. And I cut my hair and shaved my beard, and I was ready to go wherever I had to go. But they kept me. Crazy. Which is pretty cool. Wow. And then they started to build the air staff again. Yeah, with a bunch of... People I didn't know. Pat St. John was the biggest name that they put on the air, and then Mike Stevens. And, and Pat St. John's in New York City and Ben for a long he's time. He's actually in San Diego now. He's on oh, Sirius he's on Sirius, yeah. yeah. Um, and and the, the format, the, let's just talk about the musical format back then, because it was, like, like you said, it was so much variety. But we're talking 72, right? So That's when the format started getting a little tighter. It started to get tighter, because Lee Abrams came yeah. in, and he had this idea of making more of a... 19-year-old wonderkind... And what was it about Lee Abram that was so different? What did he bring to the table? Excitement. That's about it. He, and he, he was building his resume to get the hell out of Detroit at the same time. And he had some focus, though, too. He took top 40 principles, right? And said, hey, let's just play. Like, half the format was basically, like, this top 40 popular stuff. And then the other rock, half. Not pop. Right. You know, but it, it, and then there was you know, the obvious other, other stuff. The man, Van Morrison, the Bob Seger, the... Whatever, Beatles, Stones. I saw, I saw some sample hours, though, and it could be like Zeppelin and Black Sabbath into KC and the Sunshine Band. Not on my show. <laughs> I would do Led Zeppelin into Joni Mitchell, but I would pause and say, riff, and then go into her, and he says, you're the only one that can get away with that, because that's not a segue to be had. I love Joni Mitchell, though, you know? And the landscape of Detroit at that time, so we had uh, yeah, WABX, which was a progressive rock yeah, station. Yeah, they were the original. The original, yeah. WKNR-FM, W4-FM, and XYZ slash WRIF-FM. So throughout the 70s, there was the competition there, there was between W-L-L-Z, the three. And then there was some, all the stations that came alive all died. Right. Riffs still survive. Yep, they came. We're like a cockroach and, and, and Keith Richards. <laughs> the end of the world, we're still going to be around. But it's, so if we look at the 70s, we got ABX and W4 that we're kind of competing against at the time. Pretty much, yeah. And, um, you know, when I look at the first, kind of the first heyday of Riff, now tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but to me I look at like about 1978. 76? Com- we got an H here. You got an eight share. I got a 10 in the afternoon. That's incredible. I crushed CKLW. And that's all I wanted to do. Right, Put rock and roll back on the map. Well, I, I had no animosity towards CKLW. They, they, they just, their time was gone. Done. Still friends with some of the DJs back then. But, but the CKLW was the big powerhouse. The big eight. It was, yeah, for sure. So in 76, Tom Bender was the program director i don't know when he became program director we had so many so many boom 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 um i know he was a program director in 79 or 78 and there was other guys before him and my memory is like 
I block all that crap out. <laughs> right. So the the lineup, um, I know in '78, Bender brought over JJ and the Morning Crew, or was that W four? And he kind of did this pretty quick, if, if I'm not mistaken. He brought Ken Kelvert over, yeah. who was also on W four, but he was on ABX as well. He was uh, actually a Columbia record rep at the time, First. but he had been on the air at both prior stations. to that. Yeah, yeah. Brought him over and Karen Savelli and, from ABX. Yeah, yeah. So that was like the dream team air staff with JJ in the morning, crew in the morning, Calvert in middays, you in afternoons, and Karen Savelli at night. That was like the beginning to... Sounds about right. Yeah. So what was it about JJ that was so different back then? Because JJ was very different. He was he wanted all the attention. George mostly did. And I said, be my guest. You can have all the attention you want. I'm fine just the way I am. Right. I get enough attention that I don't want. Right. It's all yours now. <laughs> so but George, I still got the attention. <laughs> well, so George Bear, uh, he's the voice of Dick the Bruiser. Right. And, and everybody and else. George, George Swell. Yeah. But that morning show really, like, it really hit. And it resonated in Detroit. Why oh, do you yeah, think it, was, that was? it was big time. Big what, do you, time. what do you think it was about that morning show that was different? It was different from everything else that was going on. Yeah. And then you had Kelvert in middays. Kelvert was a really unique personality. He was the best midday guy in America. No question. I don't question. know why he ever got out. He wanted to be a morning guy, which he became. He became an afternoon guy at Wheels, and then he became a morning guy at Riff and all over the place. But if he just stayed middays, he'd, he'd have owned that plot of land forever. Yeah. So personable. Absolutely. And, and smart and funny. Funny, yeah. And creative. Yeah, no doubt. You know, I, I think about the crossovers that you guys used to have. And for our listeners, what a crossover is, is when, like, uh, Ken would be on middays from, like, say, 10 to 2. At 2 o'clock, Arthur would be coming in to take over, and Ken and, and Art would just banter back and forth. But Except on Fridays. Except on when, Fridays. When my Samoan manservants would carry me in. <laughs> Samoan manservants. That's kind of, like, uh, politically incorrect now, but back then it was, it was kind of funny. It was funny, but it was, like, theater of the mind is yeah. what that was. And uh, you'd paint this picture yeah, of, it was like... Music and I remember, like, Ooh. Uh, uh, here he comes, coming down the hall. Uh. And, and, and the visual is like you're being carried by these guys. Exactly, in a chair, in, in a, a chair. Right, with thrown. And, and then I, I would kick the door open and then fall on the ground saying, hey, hey. And then we'd go on and on and on. It was nothing but fun. Now, was that, were those planned? Did you guys talk about that? Or is it just no, he just did it, and I, and I acted as I acted, as I always have acted. <laughs> Those were so You never knew what you were going to get. Never. But they were so much fun. I'd bring, and I'd bring my razors and stuff and, and my briefcase and stuff. And, and he'd be doing crossover and I'd turn. He said, what, what are you doing? I says, I'm trying out my new vibrator. What do you think I'm doing? <laughs> I think it needs to be dosed in alcohol, though. Coming up. Whenever I got the feeling. Whenever you got it. Whenever the song turned me on, I come out. It was, it was like, it was 101, W-R-I-F. Baby! And then I kept expounding upon that with, B-B-B-Baby! And make it a little more normal, you know, like 21st century or whatever. The history of W-R-I-F. This car, this weather, I can't take it anymore! It's Maui time! Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. With Mike Staff and our special guest, Arthur Penhallow.
Getting back to the early days, ABC had a cluster of FM rock stations, and their slogan was the, like Detroit's best rock or LA's best rock or New York's best rock. And in, at Riff, it was Detroit's best rock. But as the story goes, you came, just came out of something and you said the home of rock and roll. The home of rock and roll. Got that from Bob Seger. Right. Off Live Bullet, because yeah. he said that. Well, I, got, I got from concerts, too, you know. Sure. So you, and then the you baby re- thing came out, out of a Jay Giles song, and that kind of stuck. It, well, kind of, kind yeah. Of, you know, a million t-shirts later. So we'll definitely get to baby. Let's stick with the home of rock and roll for a second, because you, you came out of... No, then they wanted everybody else on the station to do it. So Karen was trying to do it. Said, the home! You know, it wasn't natural for, for any of them to do it, so I was stuck. Just like kick-ass rock and roll, you know? Right, but it stuck, and then other ABC stations started using the home of rock and roll, and the next thing you knew, there's stations all over the country. Yeah, they were trying to do the baby thing at the same time, but no, it didn't work for them. Well, it wasn't, wasn't natural. Right, it wasn't them. It wasn't them. you got to feel it. So then baby was something else. You just kind of came out. It was impulsive right in the moment. It was like 1976, somewhere around there, out of Southside Shuffle. And, and Peter was doing his, his crazy Peter stuff. It was live. Baby, baby. And I, and I, just, I came out and did the baby. I was in a bar one night. I didn't know it was happening. And uh, this guy introduced me to his girlfriend. This is Art Penhallow. And she says, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. And he says, he's the guy that says baby on the radio. He says, oh, yeah, that's great. So I came, came back and told Tom Bender that we needed to get baby bumper stickers. And Fred Jacobs told him, yeah. He said, okay, you mentioned it two times or three times on the radio. To send a self-addressed stamped envelope to WRIF, and we will send you a free baby bumper sticker. 10,000 requests. Unbelievable. Boom. And they kept on coming. That is crazy. Yeah. Well, that, that's interesting, too. At because, least that's my memory. Well, the whole uh, Riff bumper sticker thing is part of the Riff culture. It's, you know, it's part of the brand, of course. Oh, yeah. Over 700 band names and slogans and everything else have been on the big oval Riff bumper sticker. But back then... It was just the call letters like every other radio station. So for you to well, suggest... Initial, it was square initially, but it, it, but it had the oval inside it. Oh, okay. And then they decided to get real, and they got it right. And sort then, of. So when you said, hey, man, let's do baby bumper stickers, that was kind of a novel idea because it's like, wait, we don't put slogans on bumper stickers. Exactly. And then as the story goes, uh, Fred Jacobs and Tom Bender, Fred Jacobs was an early PD of, uh, of Riff, went on to be... He, he went after Tom. Yep. Fred was right after Tom. Yeah, yeah okay. And um, they did some research with a group, and Fred and Tom were very research-heavy, and they held up the oval with nothing on it, and everyone knew it was WRIF because those bumper stickers were so cool. And then everybody else in town started putting their own names on it, and we had it trademarked. You know, the churches were putting Jesus on it, and we put the kick-ass on it. Until the neo-Nazis started wearing them to their events, put them on their shields. I said, we're not making kick-ass bumper stickers anymore. We've got to be rock and roll, man. We're not here to hurt the world. So the, so the kick-ass stuff was just something, again, you just uh, came Only I was allowed to do that. Oh, okay. The home of kick-ass rock and roll. That's so awesome. I remember having a t-shirt that said kick-ass on it in high school. It was awesome. I think I have one t-shirt left from WRIF. One. Give everything else away. One of the old ones. Bumper stickers, everything. Oh, God. People ask me for stuff. I said, I'm not Mr. Memento. You know? Uh-huh. I get that. So um, just with the baby, one thing. So you came out of this Jay Gile song, a baby. And then did you just start like saying it again? Whenever you, I got the feeling. Whenever you got it. Whenever the song turned me on, I come out. It was, it was like 
What's 101? W-R-I-F. Baby! And then I kept expounding upon that with, ba-ba-ba-baby! And make it a little more normal, you know, 21st century or whatever. There is not a phrase that resonates like baby. That is you like, can't use it without feeling. That's that was the whole deal. That's why nobody else could do it. Yeah, and it's just it's synonymous with you, with Detroit, yeah. with WRIF. And so when you so the radio station was ask, asking other DJs to try to say baby, and it just didn't. Fly. No, I think it was the company ABC was trying to get other, other people from other, other cities, to try, you know, LA or Chicago or whatever, and then they couldn't. And they didn't even know what. Well, it they was. didn't feel it. Right. If you don't feel it, feel it. So alongside. Um, the great music that Riff had, um, this great lineup, it had great advertising and great marketing. And around that 1978 time... Right there, Rodney. Rodney Dangerfield. What was that? He did a commercial, for, a couple of commercials for WRIF. Was that before or after The Remarkable Mouth? Uh, it was after The Remarkable Mouth. She was the one that put it on the map, the, uh, this, the really cool stuff. And then uh, Dick the Bruiser, the real Dick the Bruiser. Oh, yeah. was an awesome commercial. And he came up to me and he goes... Arthur Penhallow, right? And I says, he says, I always thought Arthur Penhallow was a band from England. <laughs> Interesting. I said, well, maybe it, is, maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> Those, um, the Remarkable Mouth commercial really resonated. And, and Riff played the shit out of it because it was owned by ABC, which owned a TV station, and they would just play it nonstop. And they probably did it for all their own stations. Right. Now, could you feel the momentum coming oh, yeah. from that? It was like nothing you'd seen before in radio. Well, I never seen anything before in radio. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Everything was new, <laughs> right? But it was good new, right? Great new. Yeah, that's so fun. Yeah. Now, in addition to, to that, Riff is known for its promotions. And one of the one of the best is Maui time. Maui time, uh, nineteen eighty five. I think we started that. That was the first time eighty five. Yeah, it was just, this car wouldn't start. I can't take it. I know it's Maui time. And there was a legitimate blizzard going on that day. We did it. Just And the car wouldn't start. It was an old gremlin. <laughs> didn't you end up burying that gremlin or something? Was we, there? Yeah, we did. We did. I, in the backyard over by the trailers. <laughs> so um, whose idea was Maui time? That was not my idea. But the idea came from me going there twice a year. I was going all the time, and I was always t- talking about it. Anyway, here today, going to Maui. And plus, I got married over there, and all uh, from one of my wives. And <laughs> anyway, it was uh, because I was experienced. My dad was born in Maui. My grandfather and grand great great grandfather all born there on Maui. So I was a per- perfect choice to, get, to take a bunch of listeners, winners to Maui. And of course, you weren't going to say no to a free oh, vacation was, like that. I was so geeked; it was unbelievable. And was the plan to do it every year? Or you did the first one; and it was just so successful. Yeah, it was so successful ratings wise. It boosted the numbers huge. That's all they're into is the bottom line. And Maui time increased their bottom line like crazy. Well, when you start talking about Maui and Detroit in February, of course, that's going to resonate. Yeah. You know, I remember being in high school. I must have been, if it's starting 85, I must have been a junior in high school. I remember having a Walkman on listening uh, to you waiting for you to hear or for you, for you to it's yell, Maui it's time. Maui time. I remember running down to the pay phones and putting in quarters trying to call the win. <laughs> if you're the 10th caller, and it went all the way up to 30th or something. How many years did you do that? I think 24. Wow. 24 straight I know years. They, the last one was 2008, so that's 23. Get back to Maui, though, because there's got to be some really good stories from Maui. So when you start out, like how many, how many guests or winners went? The most that ever went was... 
I forget what year it was, but a uh, hundred total people. Oh my! Winners were I think twenty five plus plus one. That's fifty. Me plus one. That's fifty two. And then and then the, the salespeople at Riff, if they sold a certain amount of commercial time regarding WRF and Maui time, then they got to go along with their client. So we had the clients, we had the salespeople, we had the promotion people, and we had me. It was the center of the, the ringleader. I just did what I wanted to do. Well, when you have a group like that, though, it's Maui time. It's party time. I mean, yeah, some I, of these guys are a little out of control, but, you know. Some of these guys, like, you weren't one of them. I wasn't chaperoning. Right, of course not. You're probably being chaperoned once in a while. I was trying to be in the shadows. And would you you would hang out with the listeners, oh, and yeah. you guys would have dinners together, and you guys would just... They, they even... They, they even uh, for the foot foot of the bill for a luau and and for a dinner mm. with good wine and everything when Riff was like flying high, yeah. And not anymore. I mean, after that, it was just like fifteen winners and me and and the engineers go over early. I went over early with them and and it just became a an afterthought to the new new owners, you know. Yeah. Um, did you guys always stay at the same hotel? No. We stayed. We stayed at we stayed at four different hotels. Okay. They just didn't, they didn't watch you anymore. Well, the first one was <laughs> not right. The second one, we kept getting in trouble from the local gendarmes. The third one basically bought us to come there, gave me the presidential suite. Nice. And, with, and it, what am I, I got a bedroom over here, and a thousand feet over there is another bedroom, and giant grand piano, and all this fancy art. That wasn't me. And so we did that for a year, and then the Hyatt Regency came to, to the plate, and they were the best. So the last, my most memorable times there are, are uh, the Maui Marriott, which then became timeshares, and the Hyatt Regency, which was cool. Everybody, from the general manager all the way down to the bartenders were all cool. Now, you would broadcast from there. And Some I think, years I didn't even broadcast. You didn't? Yeah, I thought exactly. you did it every year. Party. <laughs> Well, I bet you I'd probably, do a phone or something. Did you prefer it when you weren't because it was eight a.m.? Oh yeah, because I, I had a, I was just I was nursing my second hangover by then. It was like I'd be running the board for you sometimes, or you would oh, just man. be hurting three o'clock in Detroit, but eight a.m. in Maui—that's a like, different oh, beast. Help me, help me. Uh, Ted Nugent went to Maui time once, a few times, a few times. Any stories about Ted in Maui? Says he doesn't drink, but when he does, he dances on top of tables. <laughs> <laughs> End of <No>. story. <laughs> would he uh, would he hunt when he went there? Yeah, he would go to he would go to Molokai and go hunting. Yeah, okay. And, and he would hang out with people, and it was just he'd still he'd do it. Whatever. I, you know, I had dinner with him a few times when he was there because we were friends from before. Sure. And before he was like hugely famous. I, I, mean, I was friends with him from Ann Arbor Radio, for God's sake. Wow. You know? Anyway, he was there, and we had we had fun. You've uh, been friends with, obviously, a lot of people throughout the years. Um, it's well known. You've had a great friendship with Bob Seeger for yeah. a long time. Do you remember when you met Bob? Yeah, he was at a record promotion party in Ann Arbor. I forget the name of the record. It might have been Noah, 1969. And he had a page boy haircut. And he was sitting on the floor with his wife then. And it was, it was just like, hi, everybody, hi, everybody. So I wasn't like... And was he... Um, he was just starting to get a little momentum in the... Well, he had in, momentum in 68, with, back in 72, and, you know, or whatever whatever that song was. 
But we couldn't have been back in the 70s. Rambling, gambling, man, that's what it was. Okay. That was a hit out in California when I was there. Same with Mitch Ryder's, you know, all their songs. I met all these guys and just gelled with them over the years. Johnny B., Mitch, Jim McCarty. Yeah, it's been awesome. That's amazing. And uh, MC5. Yeah, I knew the lead singer pretty well after the fact that the MC5 kind of disbanded. Yeah. And he, he died of a heart attack way before his time. Yeah, he was. Uh, well, the MC5 was just such an influential band. They are now. Yeah, <laughs> funny. Oh, that's interesting too. It's funny. Yeah, it is. Uh, and um, so, and then a band like like Alice Cooper. He wasn't from Detroit, but he, he was from Detroit. He was from the Detroit area. He was born and raised in, in somewhere in the Detroit area. Oh, I thought he was born and raised in Phoenix, but he got no, no. Then he moved out. Okay, because Detroit understood it and got it. Yeah, we did a live concert. From the Rooster Tail with him free, and it was just, it was a madhouse. It was live on the air. Wow! We did that with Steve Miller and some other bands that were like hot at the time, in the very early seventies. And the Rooster Tail was the place. It, it, it was. They liked us, you know. The Shane and the family liked us, so we got things done, yeah. and we put helped put them back on the map because they were like, you know, hit, hit and miss. Yeah, for a long time in the well, at least in the '60s, they had a lot of Motown would would play there. Oh yeah, and Frankie if you go and if you go backstage, they have pictures of everything that ever happened there. It's really amazing to see it. Plus, they take care of you when you're there. It's pretty awesome. Even Kid Rock threw his Christmas parties in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kid Rock's another one. When did you first meet him? Oh, I met him at Alto's house. Really? After Bot with the Ba came out, and we. Met, had a major conversation and connection, etc. And then we became friends. And, you know, I went to his house, he came to my house, blah, blah, blah. And we did stuff that we're not going to talk about. <laughs> and he obviously, obviously knew you. Oh, yeah. He, was, he, he called me the man. Yeah. I was his illegitimate father, or he was my <laughs> illegitimate son. I got, it on, I got him on tape saying that somewhere. It's cool with, uh, you think about Kid Rock's story, because he was, you know, obviously I always listened to you, huge Bob Seger fan, and for a guy like him to be able to become really good friends with you guys, really cool. Well, they both became managed by Punch, too. Right. And my son was part of the management teams. Yeah. So, so, you, I was, you, I was, so it was my family, too. It was. And you've had a long-term relationship with Punch and Bob Seger going... Well, 50 years. Yeah, 50 years. You know, there's been a decade of break here and there. But, you know, I, got, I have my life, he has his life, you know. He had kids to raise, and I had kids, I had kids to make. You're right. <laughs> so when Bob Over 21, was, of course. So when, uh, you know, Bob was, Bob became a huge, just a huge star. He always lived in Detroit? In the Detroit area. In the Detroit area. He, he, did it, he was living in a penthouse apartment in Hollywood. He called me, he said, you got to come out here, man. I'm dying out here. So that was short-lived. He's got places all over Michigan, though, yeah. and, and Nashville, and, and Florida. <laughs> I'm not sure what he's got, but he's got a lot. And he would do, I mean, he does stretches. He just at uh, Pine Knob DTE recently for a whole bunch of shows. But he would always do that. He would do these long stands at Pine Knob when it was Pine Knob. It still Lewis. is. Yeah. Kobo, he would do long stands. Yeah. And those those were like big homecomings for him, right? Yep. What were those shows like? The one where, where I actually made it to the show? <laughs> oh, they were awesome, man. I was I, I was called the fifth bullet. Because I knew I was really good friends with Chris Campbell and Alto Reed and, mm-hmm. and Bob. So I had my laminate was silver bullet band member. 
with my with a picture of me, my baby picture on the back, and it was like I could I could bring anybody with me anywhere that wanted to go. It was like licensed to be as cool as Alto Reed, you know. That's, That's cool. pretty cool. Well, and it's cool to meet somebody like that before they get that kind of fame. Oh, I used to fly down to Alto's house all the time, and Chris Campbell too. Yeah. I just right. I just talked to both of them. I talked to Alto like yesterday, and talked to Chris today, and. Huh. And he wants to go have dinner or lunch tomorrow, and then invited me to the show on Friday. And I said, you know, I ain't gonna pull the age card too many times, but after last Friday, I can't do another one. He said, second row seats. I said, doesn't matter. I still have to walk up the stairs <laughs> after the show. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about your relationship and friendship with Peter Wolf, Jay Giles, man. That's gone kind of like faded a little bit because you know, Jay Giles is not around anymore and I didn't show up to a couple of concerts he thought I was going to show up to giving me a shout out and I'm in Bel Air, Michigan or Torch Lake or somewhere playing golf and says, hey Peter just give you a shout out, where are you? I said, playing golf up in Bel Air Sandy Creek You became friends with them back in the 70s Yeah, I used to ride to the gigs with them in their own limo and to the airport I was like their companion, I was a bad boy companion And Detroit was always a a big stop for them because oh, Detroit, Detroit got Detroit and, 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 and Boston, they own both towns. Yeah. I'm going to name a couple of, of bands. You've told me over the years are so many stories about your rock and roll past. And I always try to encourage you to write a book and you always tell me you're not going to do it. <laughs> a lot of these stories were told over Crown Royal. <laughs> or, That's what we call, we call the book Crown. <laughs> exactly. I'm just going to throw out some bands and you just tell me if you have a story okay. that you can share on this particular podcast. Okay. How about, let's start with, um, how about the Black Crows? Eddie Harsh was a really good friend of mine and he was our keyboard and he was an official member of the band, which made it nice for me because... I was backstage all the time, made friends with the drummer, and there's no really obscure stories to tell other than at about two in the morning one night, my phone rang, and it says, we're jumping over your fence, we're jumping in the pool, me and some of the members from the Black Crows, I'm going, oh man, I just went to sleep, go jump over the fence, and I just thought, they were out there swimming, and I went back to sleep, and the next day on the radio, I said, well, I had a long night last night. The Black Crows came over and swam in my pool and left a ring around the pool. <laughs> <laughs> How about uh, Gene Simmons of Kiss? Gene was pretty private, really, mm-hmm. but we had a lot of conversations. I've done four-hour shows with him and half-hour shows with him. He flew me out to L.A. to do an hour interview promoting Detroit Rock City in the movie. I mean, it was awesome. I got a great I thought it was just a regular room. It was a suite. Nice. Everything was in white. And it was like in Hollywood, and I had my own car and driver. And we'd go there, and we'd argue about who'd, been, who'd bedded the most women. And <laughs> I said, well, the onus is on you. You have pictures. I don't. He claims like 10,000. Yeah, well, guess what? Will, Will Chamberlain claimed 20. That's impossible. <laughs> That's a lot. How about uh, Guns N' Roses? Slash. Yeah. Hung out with him. Usually met, I met him at a... I was doing a, an appearance somewhere, Southfield or somewhere, and he showed up, hopped in the back of my limo when, when we were done, and uh, he, was, he was hammered. He was smoking a cigarette back there, and the hot ash went right on the carpet and everything. I'm going, oh. Anyway, we went to Trump's, and we were walking around and ran into some other guys that I won't mention, and uh, this thing I know, Slash and his current vocalist, for, you know, Slash is what? Snake, Snake Pit. Pit. Yeah. Did the perp walk upstairs in, in the trunks with a couple of hotties. 
I waited two hours for them to come down, and they didn't, so I went outside, got in the limo, and took off. The next day, his record company called and wanted me to pay for all the dancing. It was a $2,500 bill. For, oh, I'm going, that's ridiculous. He should be getting freebies. But I've seen him since, you know, and he's, he's pretty cool about it yeah. I don't remember I don't remember <laughs> that's a pretty good uh, yeah. safe way of getting through that conversation exactly. <laughs> I'm sure it's not the first uh, place like that that well, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of other stories better than mine that's for sure <laughs> how about uh, Aerosmith you must have crossed not a lot of real good stories yeah. you know and, and Stephen was sober and Joe Perry was out of the band and the band didn't have a record contract but they still had a promoter Nick Karras from DMA mm-hmm. great guy and uh, they played Kobo, sold out. And I ran into Stephen in, in the hallways, and we were walking around and doing this and the other thing, and my wife was hanging out with Nick, hidden away. I, he, he said, what should we do? I said, groupies. So we made a groupie run. Not that we found any, but, you know. Couldn't have been too hard. He must have been backstage and not out Well, we were in a hotel are. at this time. They, oh, okay. They, they were following us. <laughs> anyway, end of story. Uh, Joan Jett, you once told me, an interesting story. Well, I was on stage for her sound check at Pine Knob. I think it was Pine Knob. And I was talking to her manager. His name is Denny, who played bass for Tommy James and the Shondells. Mm. We were talking about that. And I said, Wait, where is Joan? And all of a sudden, she grabs my shoulders, flips me around, puts her arms around me, gives me a giant body hug, and gives me the best kiss I've ever had in my life. <laughs> Joan Jett. Joan Jett knows how to kiss. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that was the end of that story. That's awesome. <laughs> so we've talked about J.J., uh, George Bear, talked about Calver a little bit, Karen Savelli. Let's talk about some more of your colleagues and fellow DJs on Riff. I'm just going to rattle off some names. You can just tell me some thoughts that you have about them. Uh, Drew Mike. Hard to know them because they were like in their own little world. Yeah, they were. They had their own studio. Yeah. Yeah, they had their own kind of team. And Drew, uh, obviously smart, but he was, um, he was uh, an introvert. He, 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 introvert and he was overzealous with his work, which paid off. In spades. Hugely. Yeah. Great guy. Personally, I like him a lot. But sure. I just didn't know him. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't really hang like that. No. Kind of he didn't let you so, get too close. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting to use the word introvert. Um, it was once described to me an introvert is somebody who gets their energy by being alone. And an extrovert is somebody who gets their energy by being around other people. And where the hell do I get mine? Now, so you, you, I'm going to peg you as an introvert. You're uh, outgoing. I would agree. But you're an introvert. I'm outgoing because when you're, out, when you're outside your, your private space, you have to be outgoing. Right. Or try to be. Right. And, and patience is not a virtue either, so there's idiots out there. I have a hard time being nice. Sure. But I do my best. Well, and it just t- it takes energy to be around people, but you like it, you enjoy yeah. it, you can be outgoing, but you really get charged. And what, was that ever difficult for you? Because you are so well-known, it's hard for you to go anywhere in Detroit. Mm, it was back then, but not now. I mean, now it's like maybe one or two people, three people, whatever. No yeah. big deal. Yeah. They might not recognize your face, but as soon as you open your mouth, they're going to recognize that. That voice. happens. Yeah. That happens. Well, I, nobody's seen my face in 11 years. So. You haven't changed. I'm not much. <laughs> I'm more relaxed. So getting back to the Riff Air staff over the years, how about Steve Costan? Good guy. We're so good friends. Yeah. The kid, the kid, kid Costan. I can tell stories about him, but he, he would hate me. <laughs> but say, he's going to tell about like, you. <laughs> oh, he might, you know. This is how I call them peanuts. <laughs> Ask him what that means. 
I know the story. Uh, you know the story? <laughs> yeah. Aerosmith gave him the nickname. <laughs> I know. And we'll let Steve tell that story if he wants to tell yeah, that story. <laughs> How about uh, Ann Carlini? Ann had a great way of connecting with yeah, people. Yeah, she still there, does. Though. Yeah, she still does. Very outstanding. She's yeah. an extrovert. She is an extrovert. Yeah. She definitely gets her energy from being around people. How about Peter Werby? Peter Werby's a very cool guy. He is. We share a lot of the same likes, but we can't tell what they are. Mostly to do with ancient women. <laughs> you know Peter. Well, Peter's a long an time. anarchist, and you know, I've known Peter since the seventies, and he's always been a cool guy. And he was he well, he was on ref like early, early on. When I, when I first started there, he was doing a Sunday show. Night call was it night? Call? Yeah, so, it was something I don't forget. But anyway, you interview the. I remember we walking in and bumping into Jane Fonda after she was, you know, yeah, Hanoi Jane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And anyway, he had her for an hour. I wanted her for the next half hour, but that, <laughs> they wouldn't let me have her. <laughs> How about uh, Meltdown? Meltdown's very crazy guy, very loving family guy. No question. Extrovert for sure. Yeah. But, you know, we all self-impale once in a while, but he, he's, he seemed to make it. He's, he's, he stayed true to himself and his beliefs and his act and God bless him I love Meltdown yeah definitely driven very oh, yeah. uh, pro loves to play hockey yeah loves to play hockey and all Let's the hockey players know him <laughs> they do yeah. yeah they all have his number on their cell phones screaming Scott A wonderful human being isn't he though yeah pray for him all the time hey <laughs> and there's a guy that um, absolutely loves his job. He walks in every day, and he feels blessed to be walking into the riff. And he's not afraid. He doesn't to look care what time slot it is. No, he doesn't. He's just happy to be there. He deserves it all. Coming up, I had a motto: when it ceases to be fun, I'm done. Two days before my 65th birthday, it ceased to be fun. So I always hope they'd come back with a 50 percent offer, but they didn't. It's not a sob story, and there's no hard feelings. That was it. This is the history of WRIF, the podcast. Riff rocks, baby! You've had so many awesome opportunities. Um, You've not too many people that play cameos of themselves in movies, where a cameo of themselves is written into the movie. I'm talking about the upside of anger. It was originally uh, just going to be a walk-on, walk-off, and then it became, I had lines to say, you know. It was fun. This is a feature film starring Kevin Costner. How, how Joan did you, Allen. Joan Mike Allen. Binder. Yeah. How did you get uh, invited? Mike Binder and I are way old. I've done this since he was 18 years old or, or younger. And the Binder family is, is big in Birmingham, Detroit anyway. His dad, Bert, was the coolest guy ever. His brother, Jack, was... was a, I can't talk about Jack. Jack was a cool guy, too. <laughs> and, Jack. Mike, and, and Mike just called you out of the blue and said, Hey, man, I got this idea for you know, a character. He, he says, Can I come to the radio station and just do some video work and see what the workings of a radio station are? I said, Sure. He said, he said I've done it to other stations in town. And you don't mind? I said, You got my personal approval, no matter what the management says. So he showed up with a, with a video camera and did the whole thing. And then he included the, the script became, the radio station was, and is now WRIF, which is pretty cool. It would be way cool. So he wanted me to make it real by being a, a walk-on. You know, that's it. And then he put some lines in the movie for me. So, so you went out to L.A. to film No, I went to London. Oh, really? Yeah, they, they had this old MI6 building. I knew the MI6 building was empty. 
we had to be out of there in like five days because the, the guys were they were coming and these guys were badass. Anyway, they they built a studio and the board was just like the one we the new ones we we got back when they built the new building. Yeah, looked like it. And and it was great. You know, it was like realistic. Did you did you get acting lessons before doing it or anything? They wouldn't give me my lines before I got there. They wouldn't give you. No, because they say I'd probably try to I'd try to change them, uh, which of course I did. <laughs> well, the line that sticks out to me I is, saw the script fly go flying in the air on more than one occasion he's here 10 minutes he's already changing the movie uh, when did you find out Art that you were going to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame they kept calling in the early 90s and I kept not taking their calls really why I wanted to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame you just didn't see any significance no there was no building there was no nothing so finally I ABC or whoever owned the station at the time no, it was probably Whoever there was four different, four or five different owners, yeah, and they uh, pushed me up against the wall and says, "They need an interview. They need you talking. They need pictures. They need history." I said, "Okay." So have I, you been there and seen? Yes, I have. I, I did my show there once or twice, once or twice. And what was that like, though, to Weird. see your to see yourself in the rock? It was strange, but no, it was no big deal. It's just a ra- it's a radio exhibit, right? You know, rock and roll jocks from around the country that made a difference in their different cities are in there. It's got to make you feel good, though, that you're acknowledged like that because very few rock and roll DJs are in the Rock and Roll well, Hall of Fame. It, didn't, like it didn't hurt that the curator of the, of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum was from Detroit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and over the period of time, I had been really nice to him without ever... I didn't know who he was or what... I got him in the studio. He gave me tapes and stuff from England and... Anyway, so it was, like, awesome. It's one of the things when I remember um, Detroit was, like, in, in the, the vying for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I still think it should have been in Detroit. Yeah, the guy that came up with the phrase rock and roll is why they got it. Yeah, in Cleveland. Yeah. yeah. So, Art, when you look back on Riff, um, to you, what do you think it is that made Riff so special in this, in this town? I think continuity. The fact that we didn't go away, we didn't threaten to go away. Music didn't change all that much, although it got a little more uh, metal over the years. Mm-hmm. And but I, I took my liberties with that too. I brought the '60s and '70s back to life after five o'clock in the afternoon, right. against their will. But still, <laughs> the people loved it. <laughs> they did. Um, so after being retired for ten years, when you look back and almost forty years on the riff, what do you suppose stands out? I went to Bob Seger last Friday, and the fact that. I got so much acknowledgement and appreciation throughout the crowd and afterwards. And I was in Bob's dressing room before the show, and we've been longtime friends. So we had lots of hugging and kissing and smiling and pictures taken. And, and in the middle of the show, he gave me a shout out. This is for my good friend, Arthur Penhallow, and his traveling man. And somebody was bending my ear at the time, and I didn't hear it. Well, um, I mean, you're hardly forgotten. You've got two Facebook accounts of 5,000 Yeah, but I'm invisible. On each one. Well, you're not invisible on Facebook. Well, not on Facebook, but I'm, I, I thought, eh, Facebook is starting to irritate me a little bit. But it is a great way to stay in contact with people. Yeah, and, yeah, they like it. Hey, do you remember the first time you yelled, it's the weekend? Boy, I don't know. That was just something I did. Yeah. That just came naturally. Another one, another baby into the, it's the weekend thing. Right. And I just, I don't know, I just did it. You know, weekend warriors, it was perfect. That was a ritual 
for so people. Got asked to do it. I, I, by now, they got asked to do it. And, you know, it's, it's Friday, it's the weekend. Say it, say it. <laughs> right. But it just, it literally kicked in the weekend. Yeah. I, I recorded it to put on Facebook, but it ain't the same. Is, as they all told me. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's still there available for anybody to listen to. Did you always go into uh, Weekend Warriors by Ted Nugent? Yeah. Always. Pretty much. Yeah. They wanted to be you know, working for the weekend. I said, oh, that's schmaltzy pop. I, the I, lover boy. I don't I, think I, so. No, 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 no. Not doing that. Yeah. That at least had a little thing to him, you know? Right. Love him or hate him. Art, you are um, definitely a part of Detroit Rock City. I mean, it wouldn't be the same without you. How do you want to be remembered? I don't know. That I was a good person. That's all. I'm a good guy. I love God. Jesus is always on my mind. I'm a good person. I know you, you know, are. I, I can say that about myself. You can say whatever you want about me, but I know for a fact that I'm a good guy. Well, and the people that know you know that you have a big heart. You always have. I have a lot of love for a lot of people. A lot of love for a lot of people. You always You're making uh, me blush. Well, you're always looking for love. You were never looking for trouble, man. Well, Except maybe yeah. management. Not that kind of trouble. <laughs> well, management was part of my stick, and they got it in the beginning. But the new management, prior to me leaving, they didn't get it. Right. They didn't want to be on, on the chopping block. I said, it's, it's an honor to be on the chopping block. Because all these people out there listening that are losing their jobs are getting fucked over by their, by their bosses. They love it when you start fucking with management. They just make some, their day so much better. The guy just did not understand that. Do you think that, that there's a little animosity there that led to the, the fact that the contract couldn't come together? I have no idea. I think the guy was trying to move money around and make, make him look more profitable with three stations he was manipulating. And yeah. By taking my money away, it made him look better. You were surprised when that happened, I know. Well, I was shocked. Yeah. He, I didn't, he said, I, I, are you telling me? He said, well, you know, they're, they're, they're letting go everybody around the country that are heritage DJs. I said, I'm a heritage DJ, but I still have the number one fucking ratings in 25 to 54 adults, not men, women and men. So why are you doing this to me? Chopping my pay by, what is it, 65%? I said, you know what? I think I can make that in retirement. And maybe you'll get the picture and call me up and tell me to come back. I always hoped that they would. Nah. Yeah. And it came down, it was a principled thing at that point. Yeah, I was, I was stubborn, as you know. Mm, yes. Do you, do you ever regret that or no? I always say, I had a motto, when it ceases to be fun, I'm done. Mm. Two days before my 65th birthday, it ceased to be fun. So I always hope they'd come back with a, a, more, a 50% offer. Sure. That was, that was agreeable to me. Mm. But they didn't. This didn't happen. Yeah. No hard, no, no, it's not a sob story and it's not, no hard feelings. Right. That was it. Yep. The end. The end. And the new beginning. Well, yeah, absolutely. And you're still kicking and you're healthy. Hopefully. You're happy. Yeah, well, you know, I could be happier. Yeah. You're the happiest person I know. <laughs> you got a lot going on in your life. Well, you got to make a choice to be I happy. should be happier. And you golf, and you golf much out here? I play golf one day. I'm in such in poor shape. Well, you look good. Your exercise equipment's in there, so yep. I know you're working out a little bit. I got my dumbbells, and I got my treadmill. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. My pleasure. And I love you, little brother. Good Lord bless you forever and ever and ever. Yeah, you too, my friend. God bless WRIF. Baby. Baby. Next time. Ladies and gentlemen, the staff and management have assembled here in the hallways of WRIF, all looking down. As you may know, Arthur refuses to make eye contact with the working bees. Ken Calvert. This time, the nearly nude Simone manservants will slowly work their way out to the 1963 Econoline band. 
which says on the back, if I'm reading it correctly, don't laugh, your daughter may be inside. And on the other side it says, if this fan's a rockin', do not come a-knockin'. <laughs> Yeah. It was the just consummate theater of the mind, oh, which yeah. is what was so cool oh. about radio. Now, oh. when you, how how much oh. prep did you put into this stuff, Ken? I was it just kind of like I started on Thursday nights to write up things like this man was once seen wearing <laughs> wearing aluminum clown shoes <laughs> to a mini skirt contest. <laughs> And we and then we you know we'd go into Jeff Spoogie, uh, you know the great Jeff Beck instrumental, mm-hmm. Yardbirds instrumental, and then we were just off and rocking. And I remember one time, just um, taking the Bob boat horn that, brrr, and we we came up with rock and roll overtime. Yeah. And it made more sense for his show. I just remember it made more sense for his show. The History of WRAF Podcast is brought to you by the Spex Howard School of Media Arts.